focaccia barese, cat's head biscuits, and making a loaf for a rock and roll star. This week, it's all about bread. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. If you love food and you love travel, you've certainly come to the right place. This week, we're doing a show all about bread. We're carb loading with bread from France, from Italy, from North Carolina, from Greece, from Florence, and a lot more. But first, if you like the show, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're a foodie traveler, check out the Destination Eat Drink website at DestinationEatDrink.com. There you can check out all our videos and read foodie travel guides to cities from all over the world. And while you're there, sign up for the monthly newsletter because there's so much going on at Destination Eat Drink, you don't want to miss a thing. Okay, let's get going because the bread is rising, the sourdough starter is bubbling, and the biscuits are buttered. And I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Konstantin Kalfakakos is a foodie tour guide for culinary backstreets in Athens, Greece. He tells me about a bread that is both eaten by revelers late at night and for breakfast by Athenians. Well, kunuri, it's a ring-shaped bread. Uh, that is um, slightly sweet. They add a pinch of sugar in the dough uh, and bake it covered with sesame seeds. The Turkish version of this item, uh, well, as we were living together with the Ottomans for 400 years, we have many things in common. The Turkish version is the simit, but most of the times the Turkish simit comes dipped in grape molasses and the sesame is roasted. The Greek kuluri is plain, and the sesame only baked. So it's a lighter version of uh, the Turkish semit. And uh, in the municipality of Athens, about 80% of the street vendors take it from the same bakery, which is open 24-7. And guess what? That makes it a good choice for the drunk people to have it as comfort food. <laughs> right, right. After a night of drinking, you got to get some carbs and some bread into your stomach to soak all that stuff up. And Athens people have it in, in the morning too, I understand. Is that correct? Exactly. All the kiosks that they sell this item in the city center are yellow colored. So Athenians can easily spot out a Kuluri corner, grab one, on the way to work and um, keep them alive till the big uh, lunch break or decent lunch break and huge dinner. Kate Pearson has been a rock and roll icon for over 40 years. She's currently with her band, the B-52s, on their farewell tour and tells me about baking pies, canning, and making bread for fellow B-52 Fred Schneider with her wife, Monica. Oh, yeah. Monica is a really amazing cook, and she just made this beautiful loaf of bread yesterday, and she baked this bread and put an F, she put this F on the top of it and sent it to Fred. Oh, great. But Fred was looking at Facebook, and we were texting, and he said, like, send me some bread, so um, she made a big loaf for him. Oh, nice. Fred once enticed me when we lived in Mayapak, 
was like, oh, you know, it's really, really great for your health, you know, to eat bread with olive oil. It's really good for you. So for about a week, he and I were eating bread and olive oil, and then, you know, I gained five pounds in a day <laughs> and had to cut that habit out. But now, you know, we're in quarantine, and she's baking all this bread, and she's making crackers, and she has a sourdough starter that she ordered online, but it's from the it's as old, you know, it's from the Oregon Trail. Oh, wow. So it was, like, brought across the country, and people, you know, kept the mother going, and um, it's bubbling. She got, she's always like, look at this, and it's, she shows me this bubbling, you know, sourdough starter. But I used to, when I lived in Georgia, I used to cook. I used to be a good cook, and I used to bake bread, and I used to make pies, and I did a lot of canning. But I'm just completely, she's such a good cook. I, I just, I'll be the stew chef. Jess Timmons is a British expat from Liverpool living in Paris and giving food tours. She tells me about how to find the best bread in Paris. So the, we've got a little law in France. When it says boulangerie on the outside of the bakery, it means that they're baking the bread on the premises. So when it doesn't say boulangerie, generally they're baking it somewhere else and just driving it in. Um, which means you're not going to get anything still warm from the oven, which is always what you're looking for, isn't it? We're seeing at the moment in kind of, um, in Parisian boulangerie, so in Parisian bakeries, more and more, um, of miche. So miche is this traditional way of making bread, which is in a big round loaf as opposed to in a baguette. And so when you see these breads, they're generally made in the same way that a sourdough is made, so with um, a natural starter. And that is, I mean, if you see someone that's doing kind of the, the big round breads, it's always a sign that they're a little bit more invested in um, kind of the heritage traditions and in making bread absolute from scratch with no added nutrients. So one thing that I do is I have a little look around the, the boulangerie, of, of course, making sure it says boulangerie on the outside first. And if they've got different types of bread, not just the baguette, then I'll trust them a little bit more. Tony Mazzaglia is a foodie tour guide and owner of Taste Florence Food Tours. She tells me what makes bread from Tuscany so unique and tells me about a delicious soup made with that bread. Um, and why are we making soup with bread? Because the bread of most of Tuscany, especially Florence, um, does not have salt in it. Um, and it goes back to there's historic reasons and taxation and things like that. But um, now they can afford the salt, but they don't want it in their bread. They think that the unsalted bread is fantastic. Um, <laughs> and, and then it goes stale after about five minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> you end up with a lot of bread and hence all these recipes we have with oh, leftover okay. bread, panzanella, ribolita, papa yeah. pomodoro, all these different bread recipes, right? And the, the biggie though is the ribolita because you have, um, usually the general ingredients are going to be your base of carrot, celery, onion. And then cannellini beans. And, of course, uh, the kale I mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, some people will use other greens like chicory or um, things with, like, a thicker stalk. It depends because you find it all over Tuscany. But in Florence, I find it to be made with kale, the beans. It's not too solid. It's not too liquidy. But what's happening is is you're, you're making a broth. You're adding it, and you've got the beans and the kale. And then what gives it all the body, though, is you're putting your leftover bread in there. And it soaks up all the liquid. So when you first make it, you've just kind of got this kind of stalish bread and all this other stuff. It hasn't really come together yet. But then when you reboil it, so generally speaking, the next day it's better because uh, you reboil it. Yeah. Hence why you call it ribolita. 
and it's really good with some, you know, high quality Tuscan. I mean, it could be from other places, but since we're in Tuscany, high quality Tuscan oil, a little dash of pepper. And, um, and if you want to put cheese on it, you can, but we tend to put oil on our soup here when we have good oil. Katie Quinn is an award-winning food writer, and she tells me about traveling with sourdough starter in her airline carry-on. Not only is it perishable, but you because it's like this liquidy type thing, you can't you can't uh, put it in your bag and bring it on the plane with you. I mean, you could check it, but um, you know it can't be a carry-on item. Yeah, my sourdough starter, I really equate that and the ability to make sourdough bread with home more more so than books or clothes or anything else that I could bring with me is like if I can make bread somewhere, that space becomes home for me that feels like home for me. So, the the way that I like to travel with sourdough starter and there are many there are many ways um I like to dehydrate it, which is probably because it's the easiest. <laughs> you do nothing different than you would normally do, except for after you feed your sourdough starter, instead of covering it like I would normally do as it ferments, um, I leave it uncovered. So then that top part of the starter just dries out, basically. And then, and not only does it just dry out, it dries out at peak of fermentation. So fermentation is like a bell curve and it dries out right around the the tip of the bell curve. So that means all of the active bacteria and yeast are a part of that dried out portion of the sourdough starter. Um, So then the next day I'll kind of peel back the semi-dried portion of the starter and I'll just put it on a plate or, you know, whatever in a bowl uh, and leave it out to further dry out until it's just com- until it's just a dried piece of of what of starter. Um, and then I wrap it up and tuck it in my bag or my pocket or whatever I want and um, travel with it. When I get to where I'm going, when I get to my destination, my destination eat drink. But all you have to do is rehydrate it. So just add some water to it and then feed it again. And and you've got your sourdough starter. Here's more of my conversation with Katie Quinn, this time talking about the focaccia from Bari, Italy. Nothing against focaccia other places in Italy. You know, every region slightly different. And in Genoa, they have amazing focaccia too, of course. Hey, I'm not like, I'm not hating on their focaccia, but this focaccia in Bari, focaccia barese, is crispy it's it so it you know i think a lot of people think of focaccia and they think pillowy and and maybe spongy yes and with like a lot of herbs on like a lot of like rosemary and herbs on top that's all great and delicious that is not focaccia parese focaccia parese is has a really really crispy I'm talking like crunchy, crunchy, crispy um, bottom. And then it does still contain some fluffiness on the top, but like utmost importance is like the bottom has to be like super, super crunchy and crispy. And then on top, the traditional toppings are 
like cherry tomatoes. So tomatoes, but not the big, big tomatoes, smaller tomatoes, halved, put on top, and green olives with the pit. And if you saw the video, you saw how hilarious, like these, yeah, the barese are very, very um, specific about this. And the olive must have the pit. And if it doesn't have a pit, then it's not legit. <laughs> Alice Morrison dropped her high-pressure life as a TV exec in England for a life in the rural Atlas Mountains of Morocco. She talks about traditional bread baking in her new community. They grow the wheat in their field. They bring it up to the house and they dry it at the house once they've harvested. They then take it to the local mill and they get it ground. And that's the flour that they use to bake their bread every day. So, you know, they they consider me ridiculous for going to the supermarket to buy flour. They're like, (laughs) Alice, that flour has no nutrition in it. You know, you need to be using flour like we are. And is there a communal bread oven or does each home have their own bread oven to cook bread in? Each of in the again, don't forget, I'm in a rural community. In the cities, there are rural bread, uh, there are communal bread ovens. In the rural areas where you have lots of space, everybody has their own bread oven. Um, and now most of them are gas, but most people also have a clay bread oven that they use to make a very special kind of bread called tanurt, which is a dough you you put charcoal coals and burn them inside this beehive shaped oven. Um, so it's like a beehive. And what you do is you spread the dough around the back wall of the beehive. So like a, a big round splodge against the back wall. And then you brick up the door until it's ready. And then you take the bricks off, you peel the bread off, and it's crunchy on the outside and soft on the inside. Stu Helm is known as the food fan in Asheville, North Carolina. He talks about what makes a great biscuit. Most people who come to Asheville are anxious to try a place called Biscuit Head. And Biscuit Head specializes in, guess, biscuits. And uh, <laughs> yes. they do something called Cat Head Biscuits, which being from up north, I had never heard of those. They are hilariously named Cat Head Biscuits because they are about the size of a cat's head. <laughs> okay. Learn all kinds of stuff when you're immersed in the food scene. And they cover them with gravy, of course, and all kinds of different gravy and all kinds of wild Asheville style toppings and massively popular. The last time I went is because some friends of mine insisted on it. And I was like, oh man, everybody wants to go to Biscuit Head. You guys sure about that? There's going to be a line. They pressured me into it. I acquiesced. I'm so glad I did. It was so great. So I still love Biscuit Head. And I say that because in Asheville, when things get popular, you know, people start talking smack about them. But I love Biscuit Head, and I can tell you secretly that I know Asheville loves them, too, because they are the number one thing to be delivered on a Friday, on a Saturday or Sunday morning in Asheville. Oh, perfect. Before I let you go on, I just wanted to ask you about biscuits, because we're in the South, I don't know, the Mid-South, I guess, in, in Asheville, and biscuits are everywhere. And I wanted to ask you, Stu, what is it that makes a really good biscuit? I mean, there's good biscuits, there's bad biscuits, but what do you see being the differentiating factor when you're going out looking for a biscuit? All right. Well, that's a great question, especially around here. And people can debate me on this all they want. Uh, I love to debate on food preferences. But to me, a great biscuit has to, number one, be buttery. If it ain't already buttery before you put butter on it, 
it's already losing the fight. It needs to be uh, a little crispy on top. You know, if it doesn't have some sort of crisp or crunch to the top of it, again, it's not a great biscuit. And some of some biscuits you get need to be warmed up and then they get crispy on the top. Like I order biscuits in bulk sometimes and I don't get to eat them when they're fresh. I heat them up later. But if they reconstitute, that's a great biscuit. Also, it should kind of come apart in two pieces. It should have sort of a dividing line right in the middle. It should fluff up big and have a dividing line. And it should be very easy to pull it apart. And inside, it should be somewhat layered, like not like layered the way a croissant is, but there should be layers to the content. And of course, it should be fluffy and have some, uh, there should be some there, there. You don't want to. Hmm. You don't want it to be too fluffy. You want to have some substance, but it should be nice and uh, soft inside. And those are my biscuit criteria. Nobody's ever asked me I, before, I, Brent. I, I think those are good criteria, Stu. I would. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. It's nothing is worse than getting a dry, crumbly biscuit. Uh, that's that's just biscuit disappointment right there. Andrew Pryor is a foodie tour guide in France, and we talk about the importance of butter in making croissants. You've mentioned pastries, and I'm wondering, do they use this butter in croissants? Because I think, I think the butter makes a, makes a big difference. And um, you, you tell me about it, and then I'll tell you why I think it makes it, or my experience with it making such a big difference. So it is. So they definitely use it in croissants. Um, it is the, the, now I'm not an expert on this i just go by what i've been told um and from what i understand it is the level of water and fat content that's in the butter from this region uh you know that makes it so good for pastries and so good for croissants uh i don't know if you you know or not but there actually is uh two different types of just your normal croissant here in france so there's one that's with butter and there's one, they say, they call that a croissant avec beurre, depending on where you are. And there's one that's actually with margarine. Oh, okay. Yeah. So margarine was invented by, well, not by Napoleon, but for Napoleon. He wanted something that would last the long trip. They obviously uh, didn't have, um, you know, fridges and things like that. And he wanted something that was going to last the trip for people going into Russia the soldiers going over to um, Russia during his war. So he they he tasked them with making um, margarine. Uh, another story, another thought on that is that he had it made because he didn't, people used to use butter on their faces, the poor did, to insulate their cells when it was cold. Oh, wow. After he found that out, apparently, another story is that after he found that out, uh, he did not want to eat butter anymore, so he had to come up with a substitute. So, who I I prefer the I prefer the war story. Uh, I don't often I don't often prefer 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 war stories, but uh, on this one I'll go with that. Um, but what happened then when they made margarine was they realised that that was also something because it's in that level, the, the fat and water level in it, makes it perfect for making croissants as well. So getting those layers is what's really good. And then so, yes, so with the if you ever go to a patisserie in France, you will see that a croissant avec beurre is a straight croissant and the croissant with margarine is in the crescent shape. Um, okay. And... Uh, 
Yeah, interestingly enough, um, uh, I think it was one of the food chains in the UK had a went to the court over um, over it because they were getting their they wanted their croissants with butter made in a crescent shape, and the manufacturer here in France would not do it um, because it was basically against the law. It's supposed to be a straight croissant if it's got butter in it. Oh, man. I love, I love these. <laughs> I love what I call food fights. I love these things because they're so entertaining, <laughs> yes. man. Um, the thing I wanted to bring up about croissants is when, when we moved to Portugal, I was very excited to find croissants in the local bakeries. And the Portuguese, mm-hmm. everyone knows, the Portuguese also make wonderful pastries. So I'm not telling this story in order to slag off on the Portuguese because I talk about their pastries all the time and I love them. However, I have been less than enthralled with the croissants made here in Portugal. And my theory is, and you know, this could just be another one of my crackpot theories. I have a bunch of them. Um, This could be because the butter does not have the fat and water content because the Portuguese croissants um, are less flaky and have less rise to them. In other words, there's less air between each layer. And the Portuguese seem to like them, so God bless them, let them love them. Um, For me, I prefer the French ones. And a place just opened in our town that imports uh, French croissants and now that's where I go to get my croissants in uh, in in Portugal. So anyway, Brent, it is absolutely that Brent. It's and you know I think it goes with that saying the the French saying of terroir. You know uh, the terroir in butter is that you know it's what the cows eat that gives you the taste and the product at the end. So you know that's why you get a different butter. The butter that comes from Normandy or Brittany, those lovely cows they're eating you know daffodils and all of these sort of things and those rolling green hills it's just amazing so you know that's the butter that you get that you can just have i i literally i stop eating cheese whenever we have a cheese uh, platter i stop eating the cheese when i'm coming to the end of the baguette because i just want to have the baguette with butter (laughs) perfect um so Absolutely, it makes a difference, but it's not quite the same when you have the the butter here in Poitou-Charon, but you put that Poitou-Charon butter in pastry and it works perfectly. We, Being Australian, I when I was in Australia, I did food tours in Australia, and um, I had a French food tour, an all-day French food tour. It took me three and a half months to research it. I tried over 50 different croissants wow. in the research for that. And the one that came the closest to being what I'd had here in France was one that was using butter that was imported from France. There you go. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's something in that. Okay. All gluten all the time. It was great revisiting all those conversations about bread. Some of them going back a few years. So if you're new to the show and you want to listen to the entire episode with any of my guests, I've got links in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED249. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we are in Los Angeles for tacos and tortas, a monster food truck park, and hangover ramen. So don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a complete foodie travel guide to Braga, Portugal. It's a magical city filled with great food and the local Vino Verde wine. You can get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash Braga. That's B-R-A-G-A. 
I also just posted a video about Portugal's amazing Benigil Cave, which is accessible only by water. You can see that by clicking on the video tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or by going to the YouTube channel at DestinationEatDrink946. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.